Welcome to The Spin Cycle. I'm Maggie Sarachek. And I'm Abby Greenberg. And together, we are the Anxiety Sisters. Anxiety Sisters, we have an amazing show for you today, especially if you or someone you care about has obsessive compulsive disorder, often referred to as OCD. Our guest, Shala Nicely, comes by her expertise in OCD the same way we come by ours in anxiety. She herself is an OCD sister. She has walked the walk since she was a little girl, and now she is a licensed professional counselor specializing in the treatment of OCD and other related anxiety disorders. Shala is also the author of two fantastic books we regularly recommend to Anxiety Sisters. The first one is called Is Fred in the Refrigerator? Taming OCD and Reclaiming My Life, which is a memoir of her own OCD journey. The second is called Everyday Mindfulness for OCD, Tips, Tricks, and Skills for Living Joyfully, which she wrote with John Hirschfield. And this book, I have to say, has been a Bible for me in my own struggles with OCD. She also produces the Shoulders Back Tips and Resources for Taming OCD newsletter, which I find invaluable, and the Beyond the Doubt blog for Psychology Today. So as you can see, she is one busy human, and we are so lucky she was able to make time for us today. Welcome, Shala. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm honored to be here. Well, we're really excited to introduce you to our community. We have a lot of OCD sisters in our community of now over 200,000 people, so this is going to be really helpful to a lot of folks. And usually when we talk to someone, we like to start with just hearing a little bit about their story. And we know you've sort of written a book about your story, but if you could give us some highlights about sort of when OCD came into your life and how you've coped, that would be very helpful for us. Sure. First off, I'd love to say I love the term anxiety sisters because it (laughs) It makes you feel not alone, which is yeah. a big part of self-compassion. So I love that. Yes, um, that's our, that self-compassion is very important to us. And feeling not alone is our sort of our tagline. In terms of my story, I've had OCD for as long as I can remember. I was in a very serious car accident when I was four. And my OCD symptoms started shortly after that. Mm. And I did not tell anybody what I was experiencing. I saw a lot of violent intrusive images. I was worried that people were going to get hurt because of the images that I saw. I was worried I was doing things wrong. But my OCD is what I call uh, uh, uh. rule number one was that I couldn't tell anybody what I saw in my head or the thoughts that I was having, because if I did, I would make them happen. And so I kept all this to myself and didn't end up seeing any sort of mental health professional until I was 16. And I had a meltdown over a calculus test that I just couldn't prepare for perfectly enough because I was so worn out from trying to be perfect. But I lied to that psychiatrist and didn't really tell him what was going on. Didn't get diagnosed with OCD until I was in my mid twenties. And at that point, wasn't told about exposure and response prevention therapy, which is the evidence-based therapy for OCD. I was put on meds. It didn't work very well. I didn't stay on them. And then really battled with my OCD through my late 20s and my 30s. And by my 30s, my OCD was really pretty out of control. But again, I was still following rule number one. So really nobody knew about it. 
and I hold it together all day long while I was doing compulsions at my computer at my various jobs that I would have rereading emails over and over and making sure I didn't offend anybody and then I'd come home and fall apart each night and one night I was just so exhausted and I was so angry with having to deal with all this because it was ruining my life that I just kicked a hole through the kitchen wall and that made me realize that I was probably pretty sick and needed some help and so then I went to another psychiatrist and told him the truth. He put me on some medicine and that really, really helped. I was on that medicine for about four and a half years before I got a rare side effect called REM sleep behavior disorder. So I started acting out my dreams while I was sleeping, which is not something oh. you really want to be doing. Yeah. So I had to get off that medicine and thought, well, great, I'm just going to have to deal with this OCD without any help. At that point, I decided, well, you know, I am managing it. I may not be managing it very well, but I am managing it. And I had this episode where I was stuck in front of the refrigerator and opening, closing, opening, closing. And my partner, Corey, walked by and he's like, what are you doing? And I turned around and looked at him. I said, I know you're going to think this is crazy, but is Fred in the refrigerator? <laughs> my orange and white cat, Fred. And we both, it, you know, it's so tragic yet so funny at the same time that I knew Fred wasn't in the refrigerator. In fact, sometimes when I was doing this, he would walk by and I'd be like, hey, Fred. And then I just keep checking like he was going to magically get into the refrigerator somehow. And after that incident, I thought, well, maybe I should write a book about how I've been managing it called Is Fred in the Refrigerator? So I looked for some information online about OCD. This is about 2010, which I'd never really done before and found the International OCD Foundation and they mm -hmm. were having a conference in really a couple of weeks time. And I went and the very first presenter that I saw said, well, we all know the gold standard treatment for OCD is exposure and response prevention therapy. And I'm like, really? Cause I don't know that. <laughs> and I had been in and out of mental health providers since that first time at 16 and nobody ever told me that. Mm -hmm. I went out, this conference was at, in Washington DC. I went out on the national mall and I did my very first exposure exercise that night and it worked. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. And so that started my journey to OCD recovery, where I decided to go back to school to become a therapist. I did a variety of advocacy activities, ended up having the great fortune to be able to tell my story at the International OCD Foundation Conference a couple of years later. I love that conference. That is such a I, We were going to just say, it's the best conference if you have, if anyone has OCD, if you have kids with OCD, teens, or you are struggling with OCD, or you're a professional in the in the field it is the best conference right it is the best conference because it's really a community you talk about being exactly. not alone um and it's a huge group of anxiety sisters yeah <laughs> thousands of people in one place who all get it so i love it it's really awesome and really you know i would not have learned about this had it not been for the iocdf so they're a wonderful organization and my first place that I point people when they want to know about OCD. So that's really my story. I've spent the last 10 years really working on my own recovery, working on helping other people get into recovery and trying to share as many of the tips and tricks that I've learned along the way to help other people. Because while ERP can be very straightforward, it's also can be quite subtle and OCD is pretty darn sneaky. And so I try to help people understand what sneakiness they need to be looking for so they can have the best recoveries that they can. Your story sounds so familiar to me, Shala. I mean, a different type of OCD. Mine is all, was all about um, being sure I was gonna die any minute. So constantly taking my pulse 
And, you know, when you were talking about is, is your cat in the refrigerator and saying how it was sort of painfully funny, I completely identify with that because literally my husband would walk by me and I'd be taking my pulse or I'd be hooked up to a biofeedback machine on my computer. And he'd say to me, what are you doing? I'd be like, oh, just checking my pulse. Oh, and I could hear in my own voice that that was a little bit ridiculous, you know, especially since I was like 30. But, you know, OCD, I've heard you describe it um, in a video I watched. You described it as akin to being held hostage. And yes, that and I think is that's a great analogy. Thank you. I I think it's it's just like that. It's it's like having somebody holding a gun to your head, but nobody can see that the gun is there except you. So you're terrified. You're trying to act like you're not terrified, but you're terrified and you feel like whatever you do is being watched. You must do the right things all the time. And it's it really is paralyzing. It's being in the fight or flight response all the time. All the time. And everybody else is looking at you going, you know, why is she taking her pulse? Why is she looking for a cat in the refrigerator? And you yourself know that you don't need to be doing that, but you just can't stop because again, the gun is pressed to your temple and you're afraid that if you were not to do it, what would happen? And if your rule was, you can't tell anyone, my rule was, if you don't, you'll die. If you don't take your pulse every five minutes, you will die. So it sounds ridiculous, but you know, and even now so far into my recovery, I mean, when we talk about it, I, I can feel that weight of that being hostage on, in my chest. I can feel it right now, how, you know, it's so hard to live with and no one can see it. So there's, there's also a lot of shame that comes with that, or at least there was for me. I have a question. You know, when we think about OCD in the media, as the media portrays it, we think about people cleaning compulsively and checking that their stove is off, right? But OCD, part of, part of what is so interesting about it is it's it can be, it can have so many different presentations. And as you were saying before, it can it can really be misdiagnosed because of that. So I was just wondering if you could explain some of the different presentations that OCD may have for people. Sure. And there are so many, but there there's harm OCD, which is a huge category encompassing all sorts of things, like feeling like that you're having these violent intrusive thoughts and then you're going to act on them feeling like you're running people over with your car if you hit a bump, um, worried that if you have a bad thought while doing something, if you don't undo it, then somebody's gonna die. You know, like what Abby was talking about, I've got to yeah. take my pulse or I'm gonna die. Lots of hypochondria type symptoms. There's emotional contamination. Can you explain a little what that is? Yeah, so emotional contamination is that you are afraid that the essence of something is gonna stay with you. And that's gonna either be a not just right experience or it's gonna cause some sort of harm to come to you. And this can be, you feel contaminated by an experience, you feel contaminated by a person. Um, and again, sometimes people think I'm gonna turn into that person if I don't do something mm -hmm. or I'm gonna become like they are and whatever characteristic they, they have, they don't want, or it's just feels icky. Like I just have to somehow cleanse this experience out of me. And that's a lesser known subtype of OCD. Interesting. A lot of times things don't get recognized as OCD that really are, even when people go to therapists or go to get help. Someone was telling us that she had that situation of very intrusive thoughts about harming her boyfriend. And um, the first therapist she went to said, well, you know, get your boyfriend in here. I, 
I don't know that he's safe around you. I can't even imagine how harmful that was to her. And unfortunately, that happens a lot with people who have OCD, just because, again, OCD can be quite subtle. And if you're not familiar with all the variations it can take, you know, for instance, there's existential OCD, where you're worrying about the meaning of life or Mm -hmm. space and our place on Earth and the galaxies. There's neutral obsessions where something's just stuck in your head. It doesn't bother you, other like the thought of it is just there and you want the thought to go away, but it's not like it's going to cause anything bad or something like that. So there's all sorts of really tricky presentations that if you don't have a lot of experience in OCD, you might miss and call it something else or say that it's nothing or even like what happened there, say, gosh, this person isn't safe around you, which unfortunately just fuels the OCD even more. Right. Can you tell us a little bit of how the therapy works for OCD? Sure. So we're really lucky that we have exposure and response prevention therapy because even though it can be pretty challenging to do at times, it's really quite effective for the majority of people who do it. It is based on the concept that OCD is based on an intolerance of uncertainty. So with OCD, it's not about, for instance, you know, whether or not you ran over somebody. It's about not knowing whether you ran over somebody. Right. It's, it's, as we like to say, and I'll parrot Reed Wilson here, who was my therapist years ago and has written lots of great books on this. It's not about the content. It feels like it's about the content, whatever OCD has chosen to use to torture you, but it's not, it's about uncertainty. What we do with exposure and response prevention therapy is we help your brain get used to uncertainty because all of us actually handle uncertainty really well. Most of us get up in the morning. Well, we used to go to work, right? A lot of people work <laughs> but we would leave our families, go places, not you know think a thing about we're leaving the people we love the most. We're leaving our houses. We're getting in a car, which is probably the most dangerous thing that we do. And we're tolerating all that uncertainty just fine. So 95% of the time, we're doing it really well. The 5% of the time that the OCD cares about, that's that's what we're not doing. And then that grows into feeling like you've got a gun pressed to your temple to the side of your head. So what we do with exposure and response prevention therapy is we help expose you to those uncertainties without doing rituals. And what happens then is your anxiety gets really high if we're not going to let you do those rituals because the rituals are what's artificially bringing down the anxiety. And when you do that over and over and over again, your brain eventually learns, now, wait a minute, I can tolerate this uncertainty because we didn't do that ritual last time and we're still here. Like we survived not doing that ritual. So Mm -hmm. if we do that over and over and over again, then your brain learns, wait, I can tolerate the uncertainty about this. I don't need to keep putting this obsessive thought in her head over and over again. Because really what happens with OCD is when you have an intrusive thought, that's not the OCD because everybody has intrusive thoughts. The OCD reacts to that intrusive thought and says, why did I have that thought? Oh my gosh, that was terrible. Are we going to act on that thought? Is that thought going to happen? And it's that reaction that then keeps the intrusive thought going because we reacted to the thought as though it were dangerous. And then your brain's just going to bring it up again because it's like, whoa, we have to solve that. That was dangerous. It's not solved yet. Let's keep bringing it up until we can get it solved. But because it's all based on uncertainty, it's stuff we can never solve. And so it just keeps going and going and going unless you break that obsessive compulsive cycle by helping people to face their fears without doing rituals. Have you noticed with your practice, we've certainly noticed this with our sisterhood that 
COVID-19, the pandemic, it had two very opposite effects on our OCD sisters. One was that it exacerbated the anxiety, the uncertainty of it all, the rituals. And then for a good number of folks, it seemed like it was almost soothing to them because they said they felt like, okay, now everyone else, welcome to my world. You know, now you see, you know, it's really funny. A, a friend of mine said to me, I can't believe that we're washing our groceries. And I said, don't you always? <laughs> because <laughs> because I've me. been washing my groceries since I'm an adult. So for me, it's like, why? well, that's sort of my, you know, my everyday life. I mean, I wore a mask on a plane before it was fashionable. So you know, I, I, we had that two sort of opposite reactions. Did, did you feel that way too? Did you have that? Yes, I think that in some ways, those of us with OCD are more prepared to deal with this if you've been through exposure therapy because you've actually got a black belt in tolerating uncertainty and the pandemic has been all about all sorts of different kinds of uncertainty. Mm. And in, in another way, it can be really triggering and then I think there is this part in the middle where it's like, yeah, I mean, everybody's feeling like I felt for my whole life. Like every time I walk outside, it's really dangerous. People are scary. I, you know, these masks on. And that is a little bit like what OCD feels like. So I think there could be all those kind of feelings about this yeah. um, that have ranged throughout the pandemic. Mm. Yeah. How do you think? like this re-entry period for COVID is affecting people with OCD, you know, because I know for anxiety sisters, for many anxiety sisters got very comfortable at home. And Isn't anyone like that, Max? Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> have to be sort of dragged out. So I'm, I'm wondering how, how that, you know, how this re-entry period is for people with OCD in general. I think re-entry could be challenging because, again, of the uncertainty, the fact that the guidance shifts all the time. Yes, yes. And for instance, I, I'm fully vaccinated, but I'm still wearing my mask out because that's what I'm understanding that mm -hmm. is a good thing to do. I walked into my favorite donut shop this weekend and nobody had a mask on. And my brain was like, well, wait, am I supposed to have a mask on? Am I not supposed to have a mask on? Like, what am I? Uh, and yeah. <laughs> I think we're all like that because it's all, yeah, every day is like that. Yes. And then, you know, I was at Home Depot later and I had my mask hanging around my neck and I didn't put it on when I was doing this. I'm like, oh my gosh, I didn't even put my mask on. And she had a mask on. Like, so I think that it's gonna, when we see all this competing advice, competing uh, execution of the advice out there, that can be the hard thing is it's just hard to know what to do. And I think for that, just recognizing that nobody really knows what to do. The experts are trying to keep up with this and trying to give us guidance and just being really self-compassionate that you're doing the best you can, whatever choices you're making and recognizing that this could be hard or this re-entry part just because there's so much uncertainty around it. And, and that's okay. Just accepting it's not just hard for people with anxiety or OCD, but it's probably going to be hard for everybody. Hmm. I like that you brought up self-compassion. Mags and I are huge believers and we were really, we were lucky we got to train with Dr. Kristen Neff, who pioneered sort of the modern usage of self-compassion to, to manage anxiety and a whole host of other things. So how do you teach your clients self-compassion? Do you have, is there a particular practice that you like or how do you, how do you introduce it to them? I typically use uh, Kristen Neff's work too. So I love how she breaks 
self-compassion into three parts. And so I'll teach people those three parts, mindful awareness of feelings, um, common humanity and self-kindness. And I'll have them create a self-compassion statement. And then I think executing self-compassion is really based on how people take in compassion and, and give out compassion. So sometimes I'll use the five love languages. Um, if you know about that, that where people can take the assessment online about what your love language is typically used in work with couples. And I like to figure out what somebody's love language is and then say, well, that's how you would ideally give yourself self-compassion. So if you're a words mm -hmm. of affirmation person, then the self-compassion statement might be the best thing for you. Um, if you're a physical touch person, it might be good to give yourself a massage once a week. I um, you know, go get it from your you know local massage therapist somewhere um, to do something that really feels compassionate to you and to try to make that a part of your everyday work because self-compassion is such an important part of OCD recovery because OCD and anxiety both are pretty mean mm -hmm. and we can pick up that meanness without meaning to and treat ourselves like that. And that just reinforces the OCD or anxiety cycle. And if you can be nice to yourself, then that helps to provide a better foundation for your whole recovery. And I think we often, at least this is true for me, we internalize other people's judgments, others, other people who might not understand anxiety or OCD and so they'll call you flaky or they'll say you're unreliable or there's you know whatever they have a whole list of things that they might say and I know that I've often internalized that which you know then it just gives your OCD more fuel to beat you up with <laughs> because it's like well see that yeah even your friends think you're a flake you can't get anything right and and so self-compassion is for me a wonderful antidote to that. Something that's also important for people with OCD to realize is there's an obsession compulsion duo called self-punishment as a ritual where you feel like you're a bad person. And Abby, you mentioned shame earlier. Shame is a predominant emotion in OCD along with anxiety. And sometimes just people feel like they're bad. And that emotion of shame makes them feel like they need to punish themselves. So not let them do fun things, make themselves work too hard, um, not give themselves some experience they would really like to have to almost like get penance or absolution. Hmm. But then this is just feeling the cycle. And the next time that they're feeling bad about themselves, they're going to do it again. And for them, self-compassion is the exposure, but it also is likely not to feel good because they feel like they don't deserve it. Hmm. And so self-compassion for somebody who does self-punishment as a ritual will probably actually cause anxiety. But if they do it often enough, eventually they can habituate into that and, and have it, if it not feel good, at least feel neutral um, as a part of getting better from OCD. Mm -hmm. And I think that Mags and I can both, we both have done exposure therapy for, Mags has done it for phobias and I've done it with my OCD and we can be very honest and say, it's not fun. <laughs> I mean, it's very hard work because um, it does trigger you and you have to, you have to develop a tolerance for that doubt, which anxiety is fundamentally a disorder of doubt, right? And and that's hard. So be compassionate with yourself in the process because yes. it's very, very hard to do. Yes. And in fact, Kimberly Quinlan is coming out with a book about self-compassionate ERP and self-compassionate OCD recovery that'll be out later this year that I would highly recommend people pick up to learn how to really incorporate self-compassion as a key part of exposure, not just sort of an add-on, but a part of the process.
Well, we always think also what self-compassion does is it takes you out of the fight or flight response. Because when you're being yelled at or yelling at yourself in this case, most of us go into fight or flight or freeze. One of the other things that I that I noticed that you do a lot is you have a lot of self-dialogue, which I thought was really interesting, like, you know, saying to yourself, well, this may happen or it may not, not necessarily reassuring yourself, just sort of stating that. And I, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Sure. My primary ritual by the time I was in my 30s, even though I was opening, closing the refrigerator and doing some other small yeah. things, my primary ritual was really ruminating up in my head because that was how I was able to be functional during the day is basically I took all the rituals internally and just would spin them in my head so I could check in my head and analyze and figure things out and all of that kind of thing. And when I started doing exposure therapy, I recognized I needed a way to stop that process. And you can't just stop it. I'd been doing it for decades. I didn't know how to stop ruminating if somebody had told right. me to do that. So instead, what I did was I came up with what I call my may or may not scripts. And I, this was my own interpretation of reading Jonathan Grayson's great book, um, Freedom from Obsessive Compulsive Disorder, which is a wonderful reference for anybody um, with OCD. And he talked a lot about scripting in there. Scripting meaning you write out these scary scenarios that your OCD is worried about and just read them over and over again. And so what I did was I took that and I decided to just say them all with may or may nots to really make the uncertainty come to light. But if I was saying these may or may not statements out loud, it was a competing response to what was happening in my head. So if... For instance, I think that I have rubbed up against some price tags in Target. This is one that I talk about in Fred and that I've dropped the price tags on the ground and somebody's going to trip and fall and kill themselves because I didn't go back and pick them up. So it might be, well, I may or may not have pushed those price tags onto the floor and somebody may or may not slip and they may or may not fall and kill themselves. It may or may not be my fault. They may or may not arrest me before I get out of the store or sometime in the future at some point in an unknown period of time, they may or may not just come and arrest me 10 years from now and throw me in jail because somebody slipped and fell on a price tag. So I'm trying to stay present with the obsession without interacting with it compulsively. And I would do that over and over and over again until my brain could let go of needing to try to figure that out. Now what I can do, because I've done that for so many years, is if an obsession pops up, most of the time I just put my shoulders back and I just ignore it and I just go on with my day because I've had lots of mental practice of recognizing it and just choosing not to interact with it. But if I get super triggered and if my OCD is really upset, like it's a high level trigger for my OCD and it just won't let me ignore it, then I'll go back to doing some scripting till I can get it to the point where I can ignore it. So mm -hmm. I consider scripting or these may or may not statements to be a bridge tool to help you learn how to better navigate what's going on in your mind so that you can recognize the difference between an obsession and a compulsion, stop compulsing in your head and learn how to have the mental ability to say, you know what, I'm just not gonna interact with that OCD, I'm gonna go on with my day. You mentioned a few minutes ago, shoulders back which is also the name of your newsletter. It's a free newsletter. I think everyone should subscribe to it. It's wonderful, really helpful. It's actually one of those newsletters that gives you real help. It doesn't just talk about, you know, 
recipes. So <laughs> for some reason, all the news, all the newsletters I'm getting these days have recipes in them. But anyway, um, so, but, but I was wondering if you would share with our audience your tech, it's kind of your signature technique of shoulders back, because I think it's fantastic. Sure. Well, thank you for saying the nice things about the newsletter. I really appreciate that. And I do try to make it really helpful for people because, again, OCD can be so subtle and challenging. So my shoulders back technique, I developed it based on watching a TED Talk that Amy Cuddy did a number Mm -hmm. of years ago about your body language shaping who you are. And she talked about that if you're in this hunched over, defeated posture, that's telling your brain something about the situation. But if you adopt a power pose, like a Wonder Woman pose, like feet up on the desk, she had all sorts of different ones, for two minutes that that would change your body chemistry and actually make you feel more powerful. When my OCD was really upset about something, it became a huge bully monster that made me feel like really shrunken over and defeated. And if I would do my exposures while my shoulders are back, standing in a Wonder Woman pose, I was telling my head that what OCD was saying didn't matter, which is the essence of good exposure therapy is to act as though the OCD content is irrelevant. Something Mm -hmm. I learned from Reed Wilson years ago. Mm -hmm. And by putting your shoulders back while you're doing your exposure, and I'll have my clients stand up. I know everybody thinks this is totally silly when I ask them to do it. I'm like, okay, stand up, put your hands on your hips, put your shoulders back and let's do this exposure because it makes you feel like, okay, wait, I'm as strong as this OCD is. I can do this. I have power too. And that empowering experience is as important as just working on these individual exposures because when you've had OCD for a really long time, you feel really beaten down. You feel like you're not capable and you can't do this. And that's one of the ways that OCD keeps you stuck. So my shoulders back move is a physical reminder to me, yep, wait, I'm strong. I can do this. I'm not going to listen to the OCD. And it's saying, I'm acting like what you're saying is irrelevant, Mm -hmm. which again is the essence of good exposure. Mm -hmm. And I think also when we're hunched over and curled up, it's harder for us to breathe deeply we become shallow panters because think about it, your body is crunched. And when you stand up and stick out your chest, you're allowing for better airflow, you know, through the diaphragm, which is also helpful in relieving anxiety. So I just think, I think about it all the time, shoulders back. (laughs) It's wonderful. Good. (laughs) Can we talk about mindfulness? Sure. It's, It's one of those buzzwords we're always hearing about. Lots of folks don't really know what it means. So how would you define it? I'll take what I think I remember is John Kabat-Zinn's definition, which is non-judgmental awareness of the present moment. And I like that because OCD and anxiety are pretty judgmental. Everything's either good or bad, and most things fall in the bad category. And so we need to push them away and get rid of it and do something different where really mindfulness is about just being here, even if here means filled with anxiety and intrusive scary thoughts. Right. Yeah. So we're huge meditation fans, but I know in my own experience with OCD and a lot of other anxiety sisters have shared with us that part of the disorder is that your mind is hyper busy. So when people say, let's quiet our minds, it's sort of like, well, if I could do that, (laughs) you wouldn't have OCD in the first place because, you know, the mind just does not stop. So how do you address that? 
really ERP is mindfulness because mm-hmm. ERP is an intense focus on what's going on in the present moment with bringing an obsession up on purpose and then sticking with it without doing compulsion. So really ERP is mindfulness and mindfulness is ERP. Mm-hmm. But I think that sometimes when people are at the beginning of treatment, it can be hard to understand how to incorporate mindfulness because of the conceptions like, well, I have to clear my mind. I can't clear my mind. My mind is full of OCD. Mm-hmm. And so really helping them to just start noticing what they're doing. Um, Cause a lot of times we don't notice what we're doing yes. because we're up in our heads and we think the life in our head is actually what's in front of us. And it's not really. And then I think it's, figuring out the exposure techniques that work for various stages of OCD. So if I am really super triggered, it is very hard for me to use my shoulders back, which I consider a really a mindfulness technique, right? Because you're sitting back from it and you're saying, I'm going to ignore that and focus on what's in front of me. That's very hard for me to do when I'm super triggered because my OCD goes back to being its big monstrous self. And it's hard for me even now to not interact with it when it's like that. So my mindfulness technique there might be to do these may or may not statements to really help me get present with this content without compulsively interacting with it good at mindfulness just means that you drifted out of the present moment and you remembered that you did that and you came back. That's mindfulness. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So if you just get good at realizing, oh yeah, I was just lost in my head for the last hour about something, getting good at bringing yourself back to the present moment, that's what we're trying to do. And that is the opposite of what OCD wants you to do because it wants you to go in the past and relive what you did that was horrible in the future when you're going to die and all this kind of stuff. It it is very uncomfortable living here. So learning how to live right here in the present moment and to keep bringing yourself back to that over and over again, that makes your recovery stronger because it does give you the mental muscles to eventually be able to say, yeah, my OCD is having this problem. I'm going to focus on what I'm doing. That's so interesting because I remember someone telling us their obsession is about ruminating on past relationships and what they did wrong. She was telling us, you know, she'll be at work and she'll just look up and four or five hours have passed. She was just talking about totally losing herself in her ruminations. One of the real tragedies of OCD is it does make you miss a large portion of your life when it's really active. Yeah. 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 She was talking about, she would look down and not have done any of her work actually. When we're talking about mindfulness, I have to confess that everyday mindfulness for OCD has been on my shelf since it came out and I, and it's dog-eared in so many places. And I, I've used it. I've taught it to people. I've, I've begged them to buy it. I, I just think it's for someone who is suffering from OCD, it's a must have. And I just wanted to give us an example of the kind of amazing treasures that are in that book. One of the things that helped me a lot is that exercise that it's, I think you called it a music exercise or a layered music exercise. So I'll give John Hirschfield credit for that because he actually wrote that bit. Really what it is, is if you're listening to music, picking out the individual instruments, individual parts of the music that you might completely miss if you're just listening to it casually, but it changes the experience of the music. If you listen to the, you know, the drums or the bass guitar or the vocals and just listen to that, it's a, 
it's an exercise in being able to shift your attention from one thing to the other. And in doing so, change the experience that you're having. Mm. It's really helpful for me. That one works for me. So if I'm really having monkey mind, I mean, if it's just really out of control. Thank you for saying that. I'm glad that's so helpful. Really is. Yeah, what I what I think is so tricky is just how many people suffer with OCD, even probably in our community, and have no idea that they're suffering with OCD, <laughs> or that they have this sort of ruminations in their heads. And so the type of OCD they have is not represented in many places. So they wouldn't know how to connect that to OCD and therefore even be able to get treatment. So this, that is part of the reason why hearing your experiences are, is just so incredibly helpful. One of the additional challenges we have in the OCD community is that the name of the disorder, OCD is casually misused as a synonym for neat and tidy. Yes. This is Unfortunately, nobody means any harm when they do it, but it's damaging because people who have OCD hear people joking about something that they're really struggling with. It may even be ruining their lives. And they think, well, gosh, if this is just the, I'm the butt of somebody's joke, I should just be able to get over this. I don't need treatment. I just need to stop, get it together. And I would say to somebody who's struggling with OCD, especially if you're hearing people out there misusing it, or you think you might be struggling with OCD is you deserve treatment. And we have good treatment that again, works for the majority of people. So please, please, please get with a specialist and get evaluated because there's no need to suffer. Like you have a gun at the side of your head for your whole life. There's no need to do that. And you deserve treatment, even though your OCD is going to tell you, you don't deserve treatment, you do deserve treatment. And I think getting with somebody who knows the ins and outs of this, and there are more and more specialists coming out every day, um, Mm -hmm. both in-person and virtual therapy. So there's becoming more and more access to people. It's really important to make that phone call to get evaluated, to get help. Yeah. And and I always try to explain to folks when, you know, I definitely have a a neatness compulsion of some rituals around that too, uh, with germs and contamination. And I've had people say to me, you know, oh, I wish I had your OCD. Look how clean your house is. And I respond, okay, but what if I told you that I cleaned that house because somebody was holding a gun to my head and making me do it. Do you still want to have a house that's clean? And then that's desperate cleaning. That's cleaning out of fear. And that's cleaning where your heart is racing and you're gasping for for air. That's not cleaning, oh, I'm humming along to music. So sometimes I, you know, because I'm so outspoken about my own struggles, I find that I, I just tell them what it feels like. And that's what I really appreciate about your work, Shala, is that you tell people what it feels like. And we need lots of folks to do that. And that's why I wrote is Fred in the Refrigerator, because I wanted people to understand how it feels that OCD is not cute. It's not quirky. It's the 10th most disabling condition in the world. And that's not the 10th most disabling mental illness. That's the 10th most disabling illness. Mm -hmm. And I really wanted people to understand that so that people who have OCD would feel not alone and So their loved ones and therapists would understand their struggles and understand why they're doing things like looking for their cat in the refrigerator that make no sense. So we've talked a lot about your nonfiction work, but you're you're currently working on something a little different. I am. Would you share with us what your latest project is? Sure. So I am working on a mystery novel called A Day to Die, and it's about the true price of secrets we keep from ourselves. 
And one of the characters in the book has OCD. And there are also some other themes of mental disorders running through the book as well. That's a fantastic. That's wonderful. That will be added to my library. That's exciting. <laughs> that is wonderful. Please keep doing what you're doing as our community has benefited so much from your from your work and I've benefited so much. And we just want to keep this going so that the mental health conversation continues to grow, continues to become less about shame and blame and more about, okay, this, these are real brain disorders that can be treated. I don't remember where, but I heard you say that you don't like mental illness, that term. And we so agree with you. I don't think any mental health advocates like that term because it's so, so nebulous and it, and it makes it feel like, where is this mental illness or whatever? But yeah. we, say brain, we say brain disorder or brain illness because that's where it is. Yeah. And I agree with that completely because medication can be an exceptionally important part. It makes the ERP easier to do. And I think that that's just more evidence that this is biological, right? That it's right. not just something you're making up. There's some chemistry. We just don't understand it very well. Some Someday, I think we will understand it really well, probably way after all of our times. And, yes. and then it won't be a mental illness anymore, right? Because it'll be a disease that they've fixed. Right. Someday they're going to be calling like- it something with like an acronym like amygdala prefrontal <laughs> cortex miswiring syndrome. It'll have its yeah, own. Someday they're gonna they're gonna look at our stomachs and sort of figure out what's going on in the gut, and then that's how they're gonna treat anxiety and OCD and so many of these other schizophrenia, so many of these other types of quote unquote mental illnesses. That's bad news for OCD sisters. The idea of fecal transplants, no way. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, thank you, Shala, for being so generous with your time and your expertise. Uh, I've said how helpful your books are. They should be on every OCD sister shelf. Uh, we listed the title in our show notes for, for your work, as well as your website, a link to your blog. People go to her website and sign up for Shoulders Back newsletter. It's free and it's filled with really helpful tips. And there's so much information on that website. So you can really spend and, a lot of time looking at things and articles and learning and and you can listen to Shala speak. She has lots of videos where she talks about her experience with OCD and stuff from the book. So if you like to hang out with somebody while you're treating your OCD, you can hang out with Shala right on her website. We're really grateful for your work. Really. It makes a huge difference to so many of us. So thank you again for being our guest. Thank you so much for having me. It's been wonderful to be here. And thanks to the two of you for all you do for all of us anxiety sisters out there in the world. We want to thank you so much for joining us. And remember, anxiety sisters, don't don't go it alone. alone. Eh. You've been listening to The Spin Cycle, an Anxiety Sisters production. Copyright 2021. All rights reserved.